Hey, Sandy and Nora fans. Nora here. You are about to listen to part two of our live episode in Montreal. If you missed part one, you can catch it. It was released last week, but that's not why I'm talking to you right now. I wanted to make sure that you're paying attention to what's going on in Ontario with educational support workers. These are custodial maintenance, educational assistants, and other folks that support the learning conditions and environment of Ontario's public schools. Doug Ford has announced that he is intending to impose a contract on the educational workers. That means that they do not have the right to free and fair collective bargaining, a right that has been upheld as being protected by the Constitution. By using the notwithstanding clause, he can impose a contract, force on them job conditions and wages that they do not accept, and attempt to fine them every day for an illegal strike at $4,000. This is really big. Free and fair collective bargaining is a bulwark against fascism, very frankly. And allowing workers to refuse to work under certain conditions is what our modern system of industrial relations has been built upon. The fact that Ford is using Section 33 to crush this strike is a level of militancy from our governments that we have never seen in the modern industrial relations period. This episode doesn't talk about this as it was recorded a week and a half ago in Montreal, but for folks in Ontario, it is absolutely critical that you do everything you can to get out and support your local education workers. Find out the closest picket lines, check in with your closest schools. Does not matter if you have kids. In fact, it's best if you don't to show how much you are in support of people who need the support right now. And critically, if you can offer your services to watch other people's children while they're able to go to work, that will help parents who are struggling with the potential of school closures. But more importantly, if you're not in Ontario, if you're watching this from afar, this is an unprecedented attack. It is the nuclear option. And if it happens in Ontario, you better assume that it's coming to you next. So all power to Ontario's education workers unionized with the Canadian Union of Public Employees. And let's show Ford that an injury to one is an injury to all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are about to start my favorite, your favorite, everybody's favorite part, the question and answer. The Q&A. The Q&A, the engagement, the conversation, the debate, the you are wrong and it's like bring it. We literally just spoke for almost an hour about argumentation, so someone better disagree with us. <laughs> <laughs> so, Florencia's got the microphone. Um, I think she's probably looking at you. Oh, there she is. I can't see her, but there you are. Um, so, if you have a question, just uh, put your hand up. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Nora. Hi. Metsu <laughs> here. Uh, somebody who has famously agreed with you uh, about almost everything for the past 15 years, <laughs> except Nora. 
recently. Oh, we've had a disagreement. Ooh. I mean, ish. Oh ish. no, it was it was major. It hurt me in my soul. Let's just say that he's pro clown. Pro medical clowning, <laughs> and I want to give you an opportunity to speak about why you are anti medical clowning. Uh, <laughs> I think well, I speak for everybody else in the audience when I say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that actually your question? Because I totally can talk. Yeah? Okay. Um, <laughs> so there's two answers to that question. The first answer is, imagine this. You're in the ICU with your son. He's just almost died. He turned purple in the emergency room, and you rushed him past triage into the back area, which in French is called la salle d'animation. And it's like reanimation. And you're like, reanimation? I don't like that. That doesn't sound like I want to be here with my kid. And they reanimated him, and we were put in the ICU, and he was out of it, and he almost died. And the doctor, who's a specialist in child organ transplant, was like, I think he's going to make it. And my partner looks at me and says, sorry, what does he mean he thinks? I was like, it's really serious. And then a fucking clown (laughs) appears at the foot (laughs) of the... (laughs) I don't even know the word in English of the cigar, of the stretch, of the, not the stretch of the bed. And he's like, <laughs> sorry for the tape, Sandy's crying. She's laughing so hard. And I don't know what it was like, but it was like this. Oh, no, no, je suis pas parfaite. Je t'ai dans ta clown. And I was like, it's good for the ICU because I'm going to murder you. And they have a lot of blood that can be replaced. So that's the one answer to your question. Uh, the other answer is uh, a lot less personal. Um, so Matsu's talking about uh, an episode of The Current. So a lot of you might know that I have an obsession with this radio show called The Current. Um, I don't like this obsession. I wish I didn't have it. I would prefer to have other obsessions. I would prefer for the current to wash over me like most news, and I'm like, that sucked, but whatever. (laughs) But for some reason, they hit the frequency of my brain at the exact level of, fuck you, Nora, we're going to ruin your morning. And every single morning, I'm like, yes, you are. (laughs) So that morning, there was no political news, and then they're like, and now, to medical clowning. Isn't it so amazing that children who are dying have clowns? (laughs) So Matsu had this criticism of me, which is that it's artistic and clowning is a legitimate, important part of the circus arts. You know, we're in Montreal. I appreciate that. If I said anything otherwise, I would literally be shot by the art snipers, the Cirque du Soleil folks in the ceilings waiting for me to say the wrong thing and be like, fuck you, and then shoot me with their toes. (laughs) And um, that clowning is necessary, and we need to have public forums for this because there's so few opportunities for clowns, clowning, and artistic expression that this is a really good program. So fair enough. I don't disagree totally but um of course in classic current like um tradition uh, it had nothing to do actually with like the industry of clowning it was like this old clown in ottawa is retiring and someone's probably related to her at cbc ottawa and therefore now we're covering her retirement (laughs) so thanks for the first question that was a banger (laughs) 
All right. <laughs> All right, we got a follow-up over here. I did not think I was going to tell that story tonight, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of being together. <laughs> Hi, Sandy. Hi, Nora. Hi, Florencia. Um, so uh, I just wanted to ask a question about the online versus offline stuff. Um, like the way I, I, the way I'd phrase it is like I feel kind of like the online stuff is just neoliberalism driven into overdrive. Would you kind of agree with that? Because like just to go too far with Nora's um, metaphor about blocking somebody in real life, isn't that what the suburbs is like? We're just going through like that, except now it's democratized. So now you can do it to anyone, anywhere, all the time, online. I like that analogy. I think it, it doesn't fit completely because, of course, you know, you've got those suburb wars where it's like, your fence is touching my fence, and now I'm going to call the city and, like, have this huge neighborhood war with someone, uh, which is things that happen in the suburb. But it is, it is a method of, you know, like any sort of... Uh, uh, economic enclave, like neighborhood that is based off of class, which suburbs are and many of our neighborhoods are, are a form of blocking people. Yes, I do think that the, yes, the online world is neoliberalism on overdrive. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't always turn out that way, but increasingly every single space online is being driven by that. Like our society uh, you know, pre-internet, you would have corporations come up with things like, I don't know, like a television station or whatever, and then the, you know, the, there would be stuff that would happen on that television station that would be like, oh, this is consequential for the public, and then we would create a CRTC or something like that to regulate it to make sure that people aren't being hurt by that. We're not really doing that so much anymore. We're like kind of letting corporations run all the things and it's having huge consequences and that's where where the liberalism neoliberalism piece comes in but you know at the, at the beginnings of the internet like at the beginning of the democratization of the internet there was so much like it was like pen palling it was like if you ever i don't know is that something that people know about now if you're are, are there people who are too young to understand what a pen pal is Yes, I, I, I heard a yes, so I'm just going to explain. Like, pre-internet, like, sometimes you would, like, reach out to some organization or whatever, and they would, like, um, match you with a kid around the world, someone else who was around your age, and you would write letters back and forth to each other and discover another human on the other side of the world or somewhere else, and you would just become friends. Did <laughs> like, you? You must have had a pen pal. Oh, I had several. I loved pen palette. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Like, and you, it was like a way, as a kid, you know, you're like seven or eight years old, you're learning how to send letters, you're like learning how to write, you're like learning about your voice on paper. Like, it was great. It was so much fun. And at the beginning of the internet, it just felt like, oh my God, I'm talking to someone who's like in... Jamaica right now like that is so cool like it was it felt like pen palling which was like this this huge novelty and you could do all sorts of things you know like uh, come together around all sorts of things and it didn't feel uh, like anybody was first of all there were no ads so no one no one was like inter like there was no intermediary before you like saw the weird TikTok dance or whatever it was that you were looking at there was nothing that was you know, telling you to buy something first. And it was all just, it was just like a collection of people in a space. 
in a virtual space. That doesn't exist really anywhere on the internet anymore. Um, though again, it doesn't have to be that way, but we're not regulating, like we're not coming together as, as a society and having debates about what should be allowed on the internet, what shouldn't be allowed on the internet, what sort of things are hurting people, what's not hurting people. Um, maybe we should think about age, maybe we should think about uh, uh, hate, maybe we should think about all sorts of different things that have an impact on us like we would do with anything the fuck else. Like someone invents cars, we say maybe we should have rules around how motors like do things on a street. And we struggle with one another about it to like forever. Like we're like, these rules make sense, these rules don't. War on car, war on bike, whatever the fuck, right? But at least we're having the conversations. We're not doing that with the online. Like we have given up as a society the online space to corporations and we, don't have to, like it should be one of the struggles of the day, to be quite honest. It should be one of the major struggles of the day is like the democratization of the internet and to take, wrestle it away from, you know, like Elon Musk says one thing, all of a sudden um, the whole of the internet is turning this way. What, who, what, how is it that we've built a thing like this where billions of people uh, have some sort of consequence as a result of like, some guy with a huge ego doing a thing because he controls so much. Like it's, it is, it's neoliberalism. Like I 100% agree, not quite the suburbs, but I agree. Yeah, and I think about this all the time. Like what would Twitter look like if every two years there was an election for the board of directors of Twitter? You know, like it actually would be really different and not that it would be uh, utopic or perfect. I mean, those elections, I mean, I don't know if you've ever voted for like the mech elections, like Mountain Equipment Co-op, right? You're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm a member. Um, but it would still give a level, some tiny level of control the users have over the platform. And we, the fact that there's no mainstream movement, and I'm not even aware of any fringe movements. I'm sure there are some, but nothing that has ever entered my own orbit. I don't know if you've ever seen anything. The fact that there's no movements to democratize these spaces, to me, says that actually they are purely fascist spaces. They are fascist spaces, and they are making us desire more fascism. Right? They're selling it to us and we're eager to take it because if we don't have that, we lose our connection with this community that we have built online or if we don't have that, then we're not able to communicate with friends who are all over the world or whatever, right? And there's no, the fact, like the conversations that we have online about like justice and the internet are so thin, are so manipulatable, are so like cop wet dreams that I just can't see how we get out of where we are and move towards a space where we're actually talking about the democratic control of Facebook or of Twitter. Um, or if the democratic control of these corporations is important, is impossible, sorry, um, the, the, the way that our governments then try to regulate them. And like there are some attempts to, to not regulate exactly, but to try and extract money from like, you know, Netflix or Google or Facebook to try and put money into Canadian content. But those are all band-aids because we've got a government that's like incapable of getting Facebook to pay fucking PST, mm -hmm. right? Something that I have to charge when I write bullshit for someone, I'm charging PST. 
Facebook doesn't have to do that. Like it's, it's very desperate and all of the positives that individuals feel that they have from these spaces. And I'm not denying that there's in, like there's positives. We all have, I mean, fuck, I'm there all the time. Like I totally know that there's positives, but none of these positives outweigh the fact that there's absolutely no movements for democratic control. And I think that that is probably the heart of what scares you, that scares me. And it, it, it is neoliberal in that um, the the machinations of individual people that control these platforms are what drives them. And then we're stuck in this like ridiculous like Elon Musk news cycle or Kanye West news cycle. And there's like, it, it's just, it doesn't matter. None of this actually fucking matters, but people make their money off of the analysis of these cycles. And then you're like, oh, we live in hell. Yeah, and the other thing that's like weird about it that is, I think, new, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're also the raw materials of, yes. of the wealth generation for all of these, these, these things, right? So it's not just about democracy. Like, we are the thing that is being extracted to make someone else money. And, and we're being kicked in the face while doing it. Like, our world is, like, like degrading as we are giving you know, our minds, essentially, like the, the, the thoughts that are in our minds to people to make billions and billions of dollars. That's new and weird. And we have no model for that. We don't have a model for that. There should be a movement around that. It's extremely fucked up. Like, extraction from the land to create wealth is fucked up. Extremely fucked up. We know that. So is, ex so is extraction from our heads in as much as like wage uh, enslavement and like wage slavement and whatever, like all of that stuff, it's all fucked up. This is a new way of doing it that is ingenious, sure. And it's, but, but we haven't caught up in terms of having any sort of like philosophical debates about it, having so, so like societal debates about it or like coming up with solutions to how we are going to say does Mark Zuckerberg get to take all of my ideas and take, make billions of dollars off of it? And that's just okay? And then also control what it is I'm allowed to see and <laughs> the opinions that I have and then who knows what to sell me? Like, it's, it's a very bizarre, weird Black Mirror type. That's a television show on Netflix. I didn't know that. I know. Black Mirror-like <laughs> reality. <laughs> I thought it was like a literal Black Mirror, which is very spooky and cool. <laughs> nope. The original Obsidian Mirrors. Check that out. <laughs> Next question. I think my question goes like right in. Like oh, perfect. Follow-up. Um, but... I'll keep an eye for the next question. Um, I think there's some up here. Up so here, yeah. go ahead okay. and then, yeah. Basically, with the whole, like, commodification of every single interaction that we have online, like, my interactions with my grandma are being commodified by WhatsApp kind of thing. Um, and just before this uh, recording, I was talking to a friend, and I was talking about how, during the pandemic, I had to watch a family, uh, family member's funeral over YouTube. Right. And so how like this is part of Black Mirror, right? Like what kind of situation is this? And coming out of it, how we're all like just going back to work and going back to normal, quote unquote. And um, how do we deal with this like collective grief of everyone that we've lost? Um, yeah. I don't know. 
I think the best uh, example of how, like, the extreme of this was that during the pandemic, when people were dying in long-term care, bringing in iPads was the solution, right? And everyone was like, this is the best we've got because it's not safe enough for us to go in so we can watch my loved one die on an iPad, right? And I think that this is where the, it's a good example of where the technology becomes the excuse because we didn't have to figure out how to allow people into those spaces safely because we had the iPad. And so these uh, institutions uh, that are run on, you know, threadbare budgets with, with um, low paid staff and um, ill-equipped to actually um, house and care for the people that live there, right? Like the CHSLD Saint-Dorte having no oxygen, right? Horrifying realities. But the internet was there, and so you have some sort of technocrat saying, well, you know, buy a bunch of iPads and we'll make sure that people don't at least miss the last days of their loved ones' lives. And, like, think of what it would have been like in the 1950s or during the Spanish flu when the same thing happened. They would have had different solutions to allow humans into the room whether it was tons of like masks or whether it was take the risk or whether it was, I don't know, like isolation in a completely separate space that there was like still an ability to be together, but the technology becomes the excuse to alienate us further from one another. And we have accepted that because COVID is still unknown to a lot of people. I mean, we know about COVID, we've lived with COVID, probably most people in this room have had COVID, um, and so you have direct experience with it. You probably know people that have had long COVID or have long COVID, but there's, there's not, like our democracy doesn't work right now. And so we can't expect what we know about this virus to inform public policy in a positive way. In fact, it's gonna inform public policy in a negative way. And technology becomes the excuse in a lot of situations. And so, they, I mean, I'm quite worried about that because, um, because a lot of people from the left call for these things to make things safer because it's the easiest option, because that's all we have is the easiest option, because you're not gonna struggle for a harder option when your life is already on the line or someone else's life is already on the line. And so we're, you know, we're trapped in these boxes um, that feel like they're impossible to get out of. And I think that the big task at hand for, for communities right now is figuring out how to get out of those boxes is figuring out how to reject the boundaries that have been placed on us and say, what tools do we have to actually do these things in a way that doesn't force us to mitigate our conversations and experiences online? You know, this podcast is going to be broadcast to people who aren't in this room. And it's easy for us to do that. It's not always easy, right? I mean, we do this every week, so it's very easy for us to do that. And so we have the benefit of having the in-person thing and the online thing. But the reality is that every one of our podcast episodes is making another platform money. A lot of you listen to the ads. Ooh, should I announce? No. Not, well, well yeah, we can announce, but then I would like, say, yeah. maybe not put it in the podcast. No, I'm not cutting it out. Some good news is coming in January related to our ads. Some good news for you, not for us. <laughs> We're going to lose some money, but not much. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the, the, it's still a for-profit platform that extracts, as Sandy said, like our intellectual labor knowledge and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, and so we have to figure out when are we being lied to, when are we accepting the bait, and when are we actually coming up with innovative solutions. And I think the ways that we can figure that out is we always talk about power, we always talk about who is profiting, not benefiting, but literally profiting. So like Zoom has made a fucking lot of money off of us. And um, are there alternatives to this? And if the alternatives exist, what are the barriers to those alternatives and how do we reduce those barriers as much as possible? But that's not a conversation you can have on Twitter, right? Because it's gonna just turn into like a yes versus no, black versus white kind of binary uh, debate. Um, and so that's where then you also have to come together and figure out how to have these discussions. And I think also for radical people, people who wanna do radical things, you know, unless you can make sure that your spaces aren't being watched by police, like you're not, you can't do certain things. Like there's a limit, right? And so having that kind of very honest conversation about the limits with surveillance and um, the police state around us, I think has also got to be part of our conversations. And then in terms of the like boundaries, like we, we, we could as a society, as we probably once have in the past, I don't know the history of like how every household ended up with like cable in it but we could say maybe as a society it makes sense for us to create these um, tools of communication and we want the government to ensure and we want to as a society ensure that everybody has access to these tools of communication for one another so it's not mitigated through apple but these conversations are f nowhere to be found that the role of government, like the discussion, like the, the neoliberal project has been so successful that we don't even see uh, the role of government as stepping in to provide some of these things that, the, that these corporations um, have taken over. We could, we could say like everyone, you know, this thing, we are so cyborgy that this is so important that everybody should have access to this. I mean, they have some version of that in the United States. Um, where, you know, there's some sort of like free sort of phone situation that people can have access to. We don't even have that conversation in this monopoly-driven state that we live in. <laughs> it's like we could, like the boundaries are everywhere around us and we need to have the imagination to think outside of it. The other way to think about your question is that we are really bad at grief in society. Our society is extremely bad at grief. I think that, and th these are like disjointed thoughts, I'm just guessing at things, so I could be wrong, but I imagine that a big piece of the reason why we're bad at grief is because we've left grief up to institutions that are fully failing right now. We have left the, the idea of grief, which is a collective feeling, like it's a collective experience, uh, to religious institutions, and religious institutions are not doing so hot right now um, and so when we have that situation it is like a boon for this isolation and then we have this weird I, I, I don't know how other people feel about it I feel very strange about it this kind of very weird way of how we have to kind of um, perform our grief uh, online in a way like some of it is, is very tender and loving and like you know we we create these sort of um, monuments to people or, or uh, commemorations to people on their Facebook pages or, or whatever it is. But there's also a weird like expectation in some ways that you um, express your grief 
online through these posts that you make. And right now, like that is, that is our number one kind of cultural way of dealing with grief, a collective experience that feels very different when you are in, in a community with people and are like literally sharing memories and um, sharing the experience of crying with one another or sharing the experience of however it is that you express your grief. Or laughing with one another. Laughing with one another through the grief, you know, carrying yourself through, because grief, you know, it, it comes up at you in, in different ways and it doesn't go away after you've done the dealt with it thing. It comes up and comes up and comes up and might surprise you five years down the line. But we don't, we're not good at this. We have, we've left it to institutions that for so many of us, especially at the ages that I imagine most of us are in in this room, um, that we, we just don't, we, like we have less and less connection with those institutions. And we're not replacing them with anything, but these corporations are stepping in and giving us ways that feel very, very dissatisfying to, to express that grief. I, I've also been thinking about this as like, I have um, so many news papers on my phone that send me uh, notifications about things. And I've gotten like a bunch of notifications this week about uh, police funerals that have been happening. And I'm just like, man, like, <laughs> could you imagine if we like, like cared about workers or like cared about all of the people that died in the pandemic? Like we have no commemoration, no commemoration, but I'm getting news about, you know, there's a police funeral happening at this time and, you know, people can join the procession if they'd like in this way. And it's like, okay. Um, thousands and thousands of people died and are dying. And we have no, like, cultural, societal commemoration. You got nothing. It's very weird. Like, the way, like... <sighs> the way that society expresses its value for certain people over others. Well, and maybe um, put your hand up if you want the next question so Florencia can find you. But I, I want to just say, too, the, the collapse of religious institutions is very interesting because I think that when we have mutual aid taking the place of religious institutions, all of a sudden we kind of forget that, like, it's not in and of itself progressive to feed people. You know, I think of like my family who were like committed, not progressive people, very fucking right wing, extremely Italian right wing, who would feed people every day, who would who'd be working in the kitchen, in the Lord's kitchen, which is what it was called in there in the food kind of service in the church. And that was their commitment to God was to feed people. Right. And the collapse of religious organizations and institutions means that even more people go without food. But on the left, we have turned this into an expression of politics. And it's like, it's good. It's important. If you make food for your free fridge, if you're involved with making food and giving food out, it's super, super important. But it's not activism in fighting something. You know what I mean? And having that conversation, like we're nowhere in having that conversation. So it's like institutions are collapsing. Good people are trying to step in and trying to fix things. But we're not creating institutions to then fix them that would actually be open to anybody. It's like a left-wing thing to do mutual aid. 
And it's like, but you're the ones that need to be actually like fucking, you know, occupying offices, not making soup, you know? The soup people can make soup. And there's a lot of soup people in society. So that's a whole other kind of conversation, but it is, it is a place where I see the religious institution collapse being like it's most acute. And then we get confused into thinking that this is progressive action, forgetting that like for most of Canadian history, it was like really left, right, right-wing church ladies that were doing that work. Yeah. With not expecting people to do right-wing church stuff. Like it was literally like I'm making food for the poor and they can eat it, you know? Um, hi, Sandy and Nora. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks for being here tonight. This was lovely. Um, just like on topic to the other stuff we've been talking about, something I've thought a lot about in, I guess, like my young adulthood has been, um, I have friends, but it's become more important to me to create, like to nurture the community that I share geographically, to nurture the community that I have with my neighbors in my apartment complex, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, something happened the other day that made me think a lot about um, kind of the censorship stuff that was sp spoken about in a previous question. Um, there is, in my complex, there is a, a, a houseless man who often will come in and uses uh, the hallway to sleep in. I've never been bothered by him, um, never even s spoken to him other than hello, good morning. Um, to my knowledge, he's never like harmed anyone. There's nothing like that. And the other week, um, police buzzed my door. I didn't, I thought it was mail. I wouldn't have answered it otherwise. Um, and I found myself at the door talking to two police officers who asked me if there was a homeless man sleeping to the stoop to my right that they couldn't see. And I said no, because there, there wasn't a anyone sleeping there. There was someone just sitting there minding their own business. So they, they left after I said that. And almost three hours after, to the dot, my landlord showed up at my door and um, asked why I lied to the police about there being a homeless man in my building. And I said, I, I didn't lie. I don't know who that man was. I have no... Um, I don't know if that was a man who was living here. I didn't want to like accidentally subject one of my neighbors, um, whether they live here or not, you know, um, to police coming in. I had no idea. And also, I'm not a fucking property manager here. So um, <laughs> I, he, he went away, and all was fine. And he, he, but one of the things he said was, no, I saw you do it. There's cameras everywhere. And they're for your safety, and that made me think about. I, it, Are I was they so, for your safety? No, <laughs> no. And I was, uh, I was overwhelmed by how unsafe I felt by those at that time, yeah. and it made me think so much differently about knocking on my neighbors' doors to offer them like cookies or to uh, like to ask them if they wanted to have the old books I um, didn't want to use. And I'm just like wondering if there's like m like kind of tangible ways we can nurture these relationships in these kind of mini panopticons that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, how we live and where we live is just so important uh, to creating these sorts of uh, relationships that we've kind of been talking about this whole episode. Like, remember the first board games that I ever had were given to me by a man named Hudson Guppy, <laughs> which I always thought his name is funny because my last name is Hudson and his first name was Hudson. And he lived across the hall from us. And we established like such a good relationship, him and our family. He had fish, and that was the first time I got to see fish as like, <laughs> you know, a pets that people had. Down the hall were some of my best friends. We traded hockey cards. 
never watched a hockey game in my life to this day. Um, and I don't know, it was like cool to have these cards. <laughs> so, so we would exchange hockey cards and like, you know, we made relationships this way. Um, when I was like, I don't know, five or six, I decided, I was like, oh, I could be entrepreneurial and decided to like <laughs> exploit the fact that so much of uh, the uh, younger kids needed someone to walk them into the apartment building. And so like me and my sister started like being like, hey, give us a dollar and we'll, we'll walk you in. And then my mother shamed us into going and apologizing to every single person we had taken money from and going and, you know, like, but all of these things, these expressions, like this is like the expression of like living with people and like, you know, experiencing shame with them and experiencing making food with one another and experiencing, we like knew each other very well. The, we knew the custodians in the building. We knew everyone. And I didn't have a great answer, but I think I have an okay answer now, which is that the more that you know the people in your neighborhood, the less power that people like police or a landlord has over you. Because if the police come and say that they're going to remove someone and the neighbors, like the people in the community, refuse and are upset about this and want to revolt about it, all of a sudden, they've got a huge problem on their hands. So it is, in fact, the, the, in knowing one another and in creating the community with one another that you can, you know, struggle against this panopticon thing. Weird. So sorry. That, like, that's such an awful experience. Um, but again, like, if this person is a part of the community and the, all the community members feel it, it becomes a violation if that person is removed a violation to the community that the community can then express as a violation. And this is like, um, you know, one of the proofs of like how like these online communities that we have are just not communities. That's bullshit, right? Like that, you, that can't happen in the same way, but it can happen IRL uh, in this complex that you've got. It takes work and it's, it's different. It's harder than like what we're used to, again, as people who are, probably the ages that we're at in this audience, but there are people, like, people want to know their neighbors. I, I believe that. Like, I want to know my neighbors in L.A. Like, I, there's a, right now I live across the hall from an, another older guy who is, like, intentionally rejecting the idea that we don't know each other. And it's great. He's, like, this great guy from Detroit, and he, like, you know, he's, like, do you, would you like to go to breakfast today? Like, he'll just come, and, and it's, Yes, like I, I'm really not doing anything else. <laughs> so I, I go to breakfast with the guy from across the hall. And it's like, it's good. It's like, why don't we live that way? Why not? We can. And the more that we know each other, the more that the, you know, like the power of the state becomes less consequential because we have the power within one another as a community. Was that a good answer? Was that Great answer. Yeah. We had a question Next over here. question, yeah. Thank you for being here. And uh, hello, Sandy and Hey. Uh, <laughs> a quick question. Um, and it made me think about some of the questions about, like, you know, user technology. And you talked about, you know, how people who are older are also kind of more lonely than and teenagers. And we should probably do something about that. Um, they should be put together. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it made, really, really made me think about uh, an experience I had throughout this entire pandemic and how, for instance, everything was moved online and everything about what you were saying about like, you know, the iPad with people who were passing away um, in grief. Um, and so I was thinking about like my experience with my own mother who is, 
no, about 75, can't use technology. And I had to be the one who like constantly helped her with everything. And like, you know, because every, every time they were like, oh, everything's online. Just, you know, go online, fill up your, because vaccine passports were a thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, I was, th it really made me think about ageism and mm -hmm. using technology and how that kind of goes in what is intrinsically linked. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to know your kind of thoughts about this and how, how um, yeah, how can, how, <laughs> what should we do about this? Like, how, how do we deal with Stop ageism? the QR codes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Nora probably has a really great answer about this, but I'll just tell a quick story first. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I, I had to move during the pandemic, which was, like, awful. And, you know, there was a point at where I was, like, at Ikea trying to, like, get some baked stupid furniture to like <laughs> as quickly as I could. And the, because of the, the pandemic measures that they had put in, their solution was that no one was gonna get into a line to pick up the stuff that they had ordered. They had to get into a line by QR codes. And I cannot tell you how many people who looked like they were maybe 60 and above were just standing there begging people to help them highly confused and I was like how is this a solution to anything I don't understand we're in Los Angeles we can stand outside <laughs> like, this is so bizarre but anyway I hate QR codes and I want them to stop <laughs> I think we need to see technology as hegemonic it's something that is uh, taking more and more control over all of our lives and it creates a new kind of marginalization. And so people who do not have access to technology form a new marginalized class. And because they don't have access to technology, they don't have a way to advocate for themselves in the way that the majority does, which is online, right? And so it's, it's actually kind of funny that like ageism always exists in society and ageism is tied with disability and so ableism also obviously exists within society but when like tech is hegemonic and we're expecting people of all ages now to maybe use it differently but at least use it um it fully fully marginalizes the people that can't use technology and so that disproportionately impacts older people but then also um, people of all ages who don't have access to the internet, right? And I'm thinking uh, during the pandemic, when we got our QR codes, um, my local print shop uh, had a lineup down the street of elderly people trying to get their QR codes laminated, right? And because um, I live in a neighborhood where um, like there's just this, like I think 5,000 people of like, 20 or something or like over the age of 80 where I live like it's a really elderly neighborhood and so yeah I think that um, because we have these existing structures that disrespect to older people technology just makes it worse and as we push everything more and more online it just makes it worse for them and and the thing is is that like these are folks that remember and not just remember but like had their most significant often experiences having children getting married being young uh, in a world where the internet didn't exist at all. And I think that on the left, we need to prioritize intergenerational conversations. Um, it, it's not hard, right? Especially in Quebec where like the, the radicals in the 1960s, they're dying, right? They're the ones that have these incredible stories of resistance and incre like they fought off like the 
everything about the old order in this province. Mm. Everything about the old order. Mm -hmm. the, the, the church control, the priests going to door to door and asking how many children have you had, the back alley abortions that were the biggest killer of women of childbearing years, uh, the, the, the total, total, total control of the church, total control of the church. Mm -hmm. That meant that if you became a religious person, like your life was controlled in these very specific ways. And if you were not a religious person, your life was controlled in these other specific ways. And that generation created a revolution in Canada that has never happened before and uh, could not have happened in any other province. And so like what I'm always surprised by, and I shouldn't be, but like as an Ontarian, I mean, you're trust like you think old people are going to be like really shitty politically because they are pretty much. Sorry, but it's kind of true. Um, but in Quebec, that's not true. Like when I'm doing streeters, when I'm doing like trying to get people to support my stuff, older people are always like, yes, 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 absolutely. And so I think that from a progressive perspective, when we're organizing, we have to figure out where are older people. Like the benefit of older people is they are retired and have lots of time. <laughs> Like their time Sometimes. might be used different, right? You can't necessarily expect someone to be working for 12 hours straight on your movement stuff, but they're really, really important to, to movement organizing and activism. So like, I think generally society is ageist and ableist and we need to fight against that. Mm -hmm. But then on the left, we need to be actively making sure that if you've got a group of people that are all between the ages of 20 and 25, where's the people 60 plus, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and especially in Quebec, like the lost generation is more like 45 to 60. Like that's the neoliberal generation, not the neoliberal generation because we're all like that. That's the generation that created neoliberalism. That's the folks that came up in the 80s and the 90s. The only radicals who are between the ages of like 48 and 60 are like socialists and everyone else sucks, right? They're all voting CAC. And above the 60 year, year old threshold, a lot of them are voting CAC as well. But they're the ones that remember a Quebec that was like talking about immigration positively, actually, right? They're the ones that remember the Quebec of René Lévesque, right? And so if we're not making sure that their stories and, and, and their ideas and their experiences are part of our, of, our, of our movements, then we're losing a huge, we're losing a library, a full library of experiences, of knowledge, of people that have studied and thought and experienced and, and won, actually. That's the most important thing is they've won and none of us have. <laughs> Um, hi, I just want to say thank you so much for this. It's, I mean, I think it's been a long time for you, but it's, I realize it's also been a long time for me to be in a space like this. And it's, it's, it's wow, look, there's so many people here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I guess my question, or maybe I hope it's a question. Um, my question is a bit more about uh, the oppressive capacity of the internet and this, the fact that people, um, individuals, have experienced the ability to, I mean, for, I mean, I think kind of everyone kind of understands it as this sort of disembodied force. I think kind of like you were saying earlier that keeps us all boxed in. But also we're also in a lot of ways, especially now, because I mean, the internet's changed so much, even in the space that I've been using it. We're all kind of invited to surveil each other mm. And to sort of, you know, just even on the internet, off the internet, to sort of think of ourselves and each other as content. And um, mm -hmm. it's sort of like, you know, even if we have to accept the, the utility of the internet, how is it that you have to start thinking about, I guess, um, dismantling the sort of oppression, the oppressive capacity that is available to people because of it? And I don't know if this is really allowed, but I kind of want to throw in a disagreement really quickly. Yeah. I don't really agree with what uh, Nora had said about the, like, I guess I'm not, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it, but it's like, 
that's not inherently political to be, I guess, providing food or, you know, versus, you know, I guess, like occupying a building. But I guess that guess goes back into another segment where it's just like some, not everything is accessible to all people. And so, you know, it's just like, you know, a riot, it's a riot is for people who can, are able-bodied, to be honest. And so if you are trying to, you know, invite people of other ages and of other capacities and strengths into a wider political movement, I think we need to do have a bit more compassion about everyone's, um, you know, it can't be all things to all people. And then also on top of that, it's just sort of like, everybody kind of has to know what their place in the struggle is. So that's, that's I'm just throwing that in, but I guess my question really is more about like, um, yeah, surveillance and um, oppression. Thank you. Oh, this is great. Um, do you want to do the disagreement first? Yeah, 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 sure. Um, I think that like mutual aid has kind of turned into being like the space that people can occupy if they can't do other things. And we need to look at activist spaces as being like it. Activist spaces have to have things for everybody in them. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, it like it, there's no there's like and we took. I took some shit from folks in Ottawa for being like, why are you not confronting the convoy? This has been something that has continuously come up because it was like interpreted as being me thinking that there's one way to be an activist and it's to throw your body in front of a truck, right? It's like, no, I want white guys to throw their bodies in front of a truck. <laughs> but in activist spaces, um, yes, there, there is a role for everybody. And the, the reason why I'm taking an issue specifically with like production of food is only because it is something that I think is much more generalized for everybody. Like there's, there's no political orientation behind I don't think people should starve. Even conservatives don't think people should starve, right? But we do tend to caricaturize what conservatives are and say, well, they want people to starve. Pierre Polyever, he wants people to starve. The people, the old women in his riding are probably like super happy to go and make sure that they're making meals and making those meals available to make sure that no one starves. And so I just think that mutual aid has taken this, this space as being, well, not everyone can be in the activist space and so they can do something else. It's like, no, everyone can be in the activist space. But then what does that mean? Is that digital support? Is that writing support? Is that, is that graphic design or website support? Is that direct confrontation? Is that um, using a mobility device strategically, like, you know, to block, like, access? Like, I've seen that happen, which is amazing. Is it um, using different experiences and different abilities to get to different kinds of people? Um, that, that, I think, is more the activist conversation, whereas what, what has turned into being activism has been historically in Canada not at all activists, just something that average, ordinary people do, which also means I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I think we should be doing that. I think we should be doing, like, helping old ladies cross the street and getting cats out of trees and feeding people. I mean, those are all, like, good actions to take, but, but it's, there's no struggle with power in that. And I think that no one is, is incapable of struggling against power. In fact, we all have a, a responsibility to struggle against power. So then the question becomes how? And how do we make sure there's space for everybody? Yeah, and just to, I, I think this is so great. Like, I think that this, like, the conversation around mutual aid deserves this sort of attention and debate. And I think that, like, the, the back and forth, the contention with one another is exactly what we're talking about. Like, we can disagree and have this, this sort of debate. 
Um, what I would add to this conversation is to say that uh, I, I tend to agree with Nora. The, the, the political expression of want, like the, the political piece of wanting people to not starve is to try to force a community to provide food for one another en masse, not, not to just provide food for one another en masse. So that may sound like the same thing, but one is like charity or like an expression of like a charitable, which we, which we you know, on the left have had some critique about for some time. And one is trying to get rid of the need, which is to say, why is food moderated by money? And if we want to do that work, we should be doing that work. I, that's the political expression of that work, is to ensure that food is accessible and free and uh, is not, you know, like there is nothing in between. There's no money. You, m you must have money in order to access food. That would be the political expression. So we have to make sure that we are understanding when we're doing things, like are we doing a political expression? Like are we, are we engaged in a political project or are we doing something else? And it's okay if we're doing something else. But I think we, we should understand what the difference is. Can you remind me of your I first second, question? The first question is a question online. No, go ahead. Why uh, don't you start answering it? Yeah, and, so, and one other thing is, is I think, I'd like to think like food not bombs, right? It isn't just the fact that food not bombs is feeding people. It's that they're taking discar discarded food. Like that's the political action. Is they're taking the discarded food that is considered like a um, surplus from capitalism and then they're feeding people. Or as Sandy's favorite action was, those, those uh, pouring out milk in a fucking grocery store in, in England, right? Rather than just stealing the milk. <laughs> Why didn't you just steal it and then give it to people, right? But I think on the, on the, on the main question, the oppression, oppression on the internet and how the internet, we, we, we can often oppress one another on the internet. This is where it's so easy to get trapped online in doing what the, what the online world wants us to do. And I don't mean like the individuals online want us to do, but like what these platforms are set up to do, which is to create conflict and to make sure that conflict generates content. Because if we don't have conflict, then we don't have con content. And if we don't have content, then those folks are not making money. And so how do you create a platform that would get otherwise agreeing people on 90% of issues to, to fight to the death over a word, an expression, uh, a, a poorly um, thought out point, a point that you can't believe they think, <laughs> like that wasn't poorly thought out, they're just, they just think something that you can't believe. Or arguing over something that nobody said. Or yes. arguing over something nobody said, right, which does happen. Um, and, and, and how do we try to remove ourselves from that? Now this is, this is the problem is that even our individual engagement or disengagement is not going to change anything because then bots can engage and then the, you know, bots are like controlled by someone to boost engagement or whatever. Um, and so like, I, it's, it's hard because I don't see how, like for me personally, if I'm engaging with someone who I know, who I know exists, who I have mutual uh, contacts with, I engage with them totally different than if it's a complete stranger. And the complete stranger, I'm going to engage differently if they look like a bot or if they look like they're real. And it's not a perfect answer because it doesn't matter how I engage. This stuff's going to continue anyway. But I certainly give a lot of leeway uh, to, to these weird internet fights where it looks like, oh no, something's being juiced. Like 
These tweets are being promoted into other people's feeds to elicit anger and to elicit more opposition, oppression, whatever, you know, like shittiness towards somebody. Um, but what I'm really afraid of is I think it's going to get worse. I think that it, it's, dem it's demonstrated itself. These tactics have demonstrated themselves to be effective at crushing solidarity. And so they're going to get worse. And I also want to say, too, if you want to respond uh, to what we said, like, feel free to grab the mic back, too. And I promise that I'm not going to, like, you can have the last word on, on the other issue. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ooh, I think you, that question is so important because uh, what really makes me nervous about that way that we are being encouraged to um, interact with one another online is I think it's coming offline, too. It's becoming the way that we're interacting with one another. Like, we... Because social media um, is so addicted to conflict and to expressing things as conflict and to, to like creating like, you know, hierarchy through conflict, many of us on the left exist on, in these spaces by like going online and looking for the wrong thing that somebody has said so that we can point it out to the audience of followers or to quote tweet it and say how it's right but missing something. We got the one up on it to the audience of followers. It has nothing to do with the cause. It doesn't help the cause. It doesn't necessarily hurt the cause. But it's not about the cause. It's about the audience. It's about the performance. That's what, it's part of the reason why I've really reduced my engagement online is because I noticed myself doing it. And then I tried to very actively not do it. And then I still felt like I was being pressured to do it. And I was like, I'm just going <laughs> to not be so much on the internet because I don't like this. We should be using these platforms strategically like anything else that we use that is like set up against us. Like, you know, like pick a thing that is controlled by corporations like space essentially is controlled by corporations. We could spend our entire lives discussing how private property is terrible and never having anything like this because it would have to exist in a, in a propertyed space. Or we can be strategic about how we engage in that space. We could always, we should never spend money. We can never, we could decide that we're never going to interact with currency anymore because it's evil and the whole idea of currency is just like this fucking mirage of like value, whatever, right? We could just say we're just never gonna use money anymore or we could strategically use it to benefit um, getting resources for the sorts of movements that we need. We should be engaging online strategically. And if you, if you like, see something from some, that, some sort of whatever that Nora's doing and she's used a word incorrectly or maybe she's actually like going about something in a way that you think is terrible. You have choices for how you can engage that. You could quote tweet it and be like, Nora is fucked up and has been taken by the neoliberal right. She's no longer to be trusted. 5,000 likes, you know, whatever. Or you could call Nora and say, have I understood this correctly? Do you really think this? Do you think that there would be a better way to go about this? Which is infinitely better because then Nora could potentially think about that thing and the people that she's working with, perhaps she hasn't thought about that. Or maybe 
it's being misinterpreted online, or maybe something else is happening, but if it is so important that it deserves a second thought, a different look, a different approach, then why the fuck does the audience need to be a part of it? Why the fuck do the ads need to be a part of it? Why can't we fix it without the intermediary of the fucking corporations who are trying to make money off of it? That's ego, and that is individualism, and it is neoliberalism, and it has nothing to do with solving our issues, building solidarity, fighting back, or building power. But it is really fucking easy. And fun. <laughs> Only sometimes. I mean, there's like dopamine things or whatever the fuck. It's, it's really not fun to do with someone on the left. It's super fun to do with someone on the right. <laughs> but the thing is, like, it's happening outside now, too. Like, I can't tell you, you know, there's been spaces that I've been in where, you know, there's people that I know who have critiques of stuff that I've done because I've seen them online, but they, they'll say hello, <laughs> but they won't talk about those things with me in person. <laughs> it's like... That's weird. Um, or, you know, we'll be in a space and then there's, you know, like everything's good until another person is around. And then it's like, oh, wait, we don't, we, they don't like each other. We like each other. Like, who do I need to be? Like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> that is very strange. It's really weird. We could instead just stop mediating our lives through the internet in real life. And instead of trying to be, getting one up on each other all the time because that is the way the internet has decided our relationships are now formed. We could just be real people <laughs> and just have relationships with one another that include disagreement and but are committed to whatever the collective project is if that's how we are in relation with one another. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Awesome. Let's take uh, one last question, unless you want to have a rebuttal, which is totally right. Um, so I'll let Florencia figure that out, and we'll do one last question after. And then no, no stress either. You do not have to have a rebuttal. <laughs> Hi, Sandy. Hi, Nora. Thank hey. you so much for this tonight. Um, my question ties up a bit with everything we've spoken. So talking about how we communicate and interact with the internet and how the pandemic has pushed us to become very isolated and almost only interact through the internet, in my opinion, has led us to become less and less, to show less and less empathy. Mm. And so my question would be, like two questions, where do you see empathy going with the fact that people are interacting less in person due mm. to the pandemic? And like you were mentioning, Sandy, even in person post internet, feels like a lot, little odd. And what do you envision for empathy within political movements, with it, whether it is engaging with people from your own political values or opposite? Yeah, okay, so I think that um, I, I don't, I mean, I have what I would hope for and what I see as being, unfortunately, where we're heading. I think that empathy, nuance, discussions, debating, collective struggle, I think all of that becomes harder and harder and harder as the internet takes a bigger hold on our lives. 
but then also, and I mean, there's interplay between these things, but then as our political um, decisions get constricted and constricted and constricted, right? So you find yourself like voting for the least worst. You find yourself doing campaigns that are fighting for the smallest crumbs because you just can't figure out how to organize bigger. And uh, the, com the dual combination of those things means that there's even less space for empathy. There's even less space for nuance. There's even less space for understanding one another. And because we don't have a collective awareness of how individualized our personal interactions with the world is, there's like even less space for empathy. So like it turns into memes about empathy or memes about grief or the way we uh, perform these things. And it is much less about how we actually are feeling. And, um, and that's genuine, like it's, that's cancerous. Like it really is eating at us in a very destructive way. And there's not any good treatment, <laughs> sadly. Um, I wish I had a more positive um, response to this, but I really like, we're just, we're barreling towards the worst case scenario in how we're interacting with one another. And because we don't see how isolated we are from other people, we feel like it's hard to reach across the aisle or reach across opinion because the only other opinions that we're seeing are like really bad opinions. And then you find yourself like, oh my God, I have to like try and reach over to someone who's like a full on anti-vaxxer, my cousin who I hate, right? <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not, that's not actually what real life is like. Um, and so if we're thinking about strategies to make sure that we're able to have empathy and have human contact, I think that, you know, with organizing spaces or friendships or whatever, like we need to be actively seeking real life relationships. Um, and I think that that's happening. I mean, I was in Toronto a couple of uh, weeks ago and there was like a collective weird like run that all these people signed up for. And so it was like every Tuesday night at seven is like a critical mass, but jogging. And they just kind of took over the street. And you can see like relationships forming and people meeting each other just on the basis of being joggers, right? Which is a kind of person. So that's fine. <laughs> they can have each other. <laughs> and, um, and we and, uh, in left-wing movements, we need to be creating spaces for that empathetic expression. Um, and so like, you know, if someone's how relation dies, like, are we bringing them comforting things? Are we helping to create a food chain? Are we going to the wake? Are we, you know, being with them in that moment, in a human moment, uh, or like not as intense, are we creating social spaces or is everything that we're doing meetings, everything that we're doing actions? Like, are we able to just invite people to a party? Are we able to invite people to like go away together for a weekend to like a SAPAC or something, you know? Um, and so I, I think that we need to resist the destruction of these emotions, but we have to be very honest that um, empathy doesn't make anyone money. <laughs> Fighting does, um, but, but being empathetic is, 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 is not. And it's really a, a shame because like the best political systems have empathy built into them, obviously. Like, you know, taking care of one another is, is, should be the, form the basis of the best political systems. And that's getting constantly undermined while people are using the language of empathy to basically lie, right? Um, and it's, um, it's really difficult and it's really sticky. Like it's hard to, it's hard to get out of that logic if we're really embedded in it. Yeah, I think that that was a great answer and I don't really have anything else to add. So I'm wondering, that was the last question, yes? Well, 
Y'all, this has been really, really fucking great. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming out. We honestly were not expecting this many people to be here. So we're pretty stunned and very happy to have spent this first live show back with all of y'all. And I think we had a really great discussion. So thank you for contributing to that and for being a part of our universe uh, and for the support. We really deeply appreciate it. Thank you to all of the workers that made tonight happen. Thank you to the venue, to the folks from the CSU, to Nora, to everyone here. Uh, really, this comes together as a, as a collective effort. And so, gosh, we couldn't be more grateful. No, we could not. Um, we're going to stick around for a bit. We'll yeah, hang out. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what they'll kick us out at some point. Um, but uh, you'll be able to catch this episode uh, coming out next week. So make sure you'll be like, I was there. <laughs> and, um, and honestly, I mean, like, thank you for being here tonight. But also thank you for supporting Sandy and Nora. Like, it is such a weird thing to do a podcast. <laughs> and um, as I've launched two others that no one listens to almost... <laughs> Um, I mean, to have a podcast that people listen to is, uh, is, uh, it's, it, like, it's hard to describe the feeling of it. And we are, you know, we're, we're just recording our conversations. Like we're shooting this shit. We're able to stay in touch. And the fact that it means enough to you all to actually be here tonight is like, well, one, mind-fucking-blowing. Um, and two, uh, really amazing. And so I hope that... Um, you know, we're just average people. We're fucking doing our thing. You guys do your thing every day. We all do things. That's life, right? Um, don't ever hesitate to be in touch with me. Sandy's like not online, so don't try to get in touch with her. She's like not, <laughs> she's not into that. But you could tell Nora a thing and then she'll pass it on to me and then I will. I'll, I'll get back to you if it's like a thing that's like, you know, I should get back to you on. <laughs> so that, that is real. That's it's real. true. But thank you so much for your support. And, um, and honestly, we don't, like for two people that have a lot of words all the fucking time, we really don't have the words to say thank you. Like it's, I'm, if I cried, I would be crying right now. 